Thank you for checking out the Collective Church podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. Easter Sunday is right around the corner, and we would love for you to make plans to be at Collective that day. It's going to be an amazing Sunday, so mark your calendars for April 9th. You won't want to miss it. For more information, make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church. Now let's get into Sunday's message. Before we jump into things today, I want to talk a little bit about Easter. Easter Sunday is just a few weeks away on April 9th. And as always, we have an incredible Sunday planned out. Collective Kids has something amazing planned for birth through fifth graders. Um, There'll be an after service surprise for everyone. Like Danielle said, the hope is that the mural is done in the lobby. It'll be a great backdrop for any of your uh, Easter photos you want to take. There are multiple baptisms that we're already going to be celebrating that day and a bunch of other uh, fun things. And so uh, we want to make sure that you are here. But also, Easter Sunday is a great Sunday to invite and bring your friends, family, and coworkers to Collective. And I know that it's intimidating to invite people to church, but check this out. Barna Group, who I mention from time to time, they do studies on kind of spiritual assessments, um, faith-based you know, surveys and stuff like that. This fall, uh, they actually put out this survey and these findings that um, gave me goosebumps when I read it for the first time. Uh, here's what they found. They, they surveyed thousands of people They found that 74% of people who responded said that they want to grow spiritually, right? Right? They're looking for some way to kind of lean further into faith or grow in their faith. Uh, But but more importantly, 44% of the people who responded said they are more open to God now than they were before the pandemic, right? And this is a huge deal, right? The, the, The period of the pandemic when we were locked, it was hard, and we felt a lot of things, and people are coming out of that saying, Man, I felt lost. I felt lonely. Uh, I started wrestling with what is purpose, what is life. And they're starting to realize that maybe, maybe it's tied to God and faith. And so I, I'm just going to say this. Uh, you know, people are more willing now than they have been in years to check out a church, right? right? To try to experience what God has for them. And what we do know is that your neighbors and your friends and your family, they need what God offers. They need resurrection in their lives. That longing that they have is that they want resurrection in their lives. They want the dead things to come back to life in their faith and in their marriages and the way they view themselves in their pain and their hope. And so while we try to make every Sunday at Collective a great Sunday to invite people, this is especially true on Easter. So when you came in today, there were invite cards on your seats. We hand these out every Christmas, every Easter, and we encourage and challenge you to invite But I also want to encourage you, if you're like, I don't know if I want to hand these invite cards out, just take a picture of the slide behind me and text it out to someone, right? Pick a service, say, hey, I'm going 930, will you sit with me? Because chances are they are looking for something, they are longing for something, and they are more likely to say yes now than people have ever been. And one of our goals is, at the two services we're having, is we want to pack this place out. We even bought more chairs, And so we want to fill it up even more than what we can do. And really, this is all about creating opportunities for people to hear how Jesus conquered death. And when he did that, it proved that his promises of new life and grace and hope and purpose and peace are real. And that is what people are longing for and looking for. And we know that where you find that is through Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk a little bit more about invitation and give you more opportunities. Uh, But I wanted to break the ice on that challenge today before we kick off 
this series. Now, let me talk about this series. We're in this new series today called Inspired By. If you couldn't tell by the giant paint by numbers in the lobby, the canvas is behind me and the series graphic on the screen. This series is based on famous works of art that depict Jesus's final days. And over the next few weeks, including Easter, we're going to go through his crucifixion and his death, his burial, and his resurrection that have been inspiring art, these famous works of art, for centuries. And today, we're going to look at one of the most famous paintings in the world, one that you have all all seen before. We're going to be digging into The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. And before I share about this masterpiece and the story in the Bible where it draws its inspiration, I thought it would be fun to do a quick art lesson. Now, I am not an expert on art, but I am conveniently married to one. My wife, Ray, has a humanities degree with an emphasis in art history. Her master's is in art education. She's an incredible painter. She painted all of these, um, and she teaches art. And so will you give it up for Ray? For those of you who don't know us as a couple, there's no better summary of who we are than our t-shirts. These are both paintings by Van Gogh. Mine is called Skull, and hers is Starry Night that actually has a cat hidden in it somewhere. So. I also have Van Gogh socks on. <laughs> art teacher through and through. Um, all right, so like Michael said, I am an art teacher, um, but more specifically, I teach eighth grade art. And so you might think that means I'm not nervous being up here um, because I teach 150 teenagers art every single day. Um, But that is way different than this. And so if you guys could actually start acting more like my students and pretend to not be on your phones while actually checking Snapchat, thanks, yeah, that would be a lot more comfortable. You also have to not laugh at any of my jokes, so don't laugh. See, you're already breaking the rules. Um, All right, so I am going to start today by taking you through an art viewing exercise. And I like to use this exercise with my students when we're looking at art that is new to us um, or art that can be controversial in some way. I like to do it when we're looking at abstract art, especially because it can be hard to understand. Um, This exercise is called See, Think, Wonder. And if you're an educator, you may have used this in your classroom in some capacity. Um, It was created by researchers at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. Um, And the purpose of the activity is to move students beyond just observing art and get to the point where they can start thinking about what it means, so thinking more deeply about it. And since I am an educator and I am not a public speaker, you are going to have to do some work today. So I need you to get out something to write on, and I need you to get out something to write with. And I do mean that, so I need to see you start moving right now. (laughs) This can be a pencil and paper. This could just be your phone. You can write in your notes if you want to. Um, But I feel like I'm being observed right now, so I need 100% participation from all of you. I'm judging all of you. (laughs) Um, All right, so as you guys get those things out, I'll explain our first step. Um, So there are three parts to this exercise. Obviously, the first one is to see. Um, So on your piece of paper, I want you to write down, I see, and you are going to finish that sentence. And this step is exactly what it sounds like. You are going to look at this painting behind me, and you are going to start listing the things that you see. But the trick to this is to make it a statement, an observation. So you might know something about this painting already, 
and you might have opinions about it, but I want you to hold on to your opinions, and I want you to just tell me your observations. This can be as simple as, I see a bunch of dudes eating at a table, um, or you can get a little bit more detailed, like I see a windows in the background and there's a landscape behind it. Um, and you can list as many things as you want. There are no wrong answers unless you're making something up that's not actually there. Um, and in fact, in my classroom, I would set a timer right now, and I would tell you to list as many things as you can in 60 seconds. But I'm hoping that you are already writing right now as I'm talking. And so I'm not going to set a timer for you all. Um, if you were my students, I would also take time right now to let you share with the class. And I know that some of you are dying to share right now. Um, but I'm not going to make you do that either. And this is where Michael would make fun of all the extroverts in the room who really want to share their answers. But I'm one of you, and so I'm not going to make fun of you either. So. I am, though. <laughs> Don't shout it out. <laughs> uh, always raise your hand, yes. Um, all right. Your next step is to think. You are going to write down what you think is going on in the painting based on your observations. And I want you to go ahead and write while I'm talking. Um, this can be something like, I think these guys are a panel of judges on a reality cooking show. Um, or I think those two guys on the end are about to fight. Um, but I also like to encourage my kids at this point to give those opinions that I didn't let them write down in the first step just because I know it's like eating away at them and they really want to tell me that they think, you know, this painting is really lame. Um, but I want you, if you do write an opinion, in addition to what you think is going on, you have to be able to justify it. So I think this painting is lame because of these reasons. Um, so justify your opinions. And the thing about this step is that when you learn more about the painting, which you will, um, you might find out that you're wrong. And so you have to be okay with making guesses and being wrong about them. So for example, I know that this is not actually a reality cooking show, but I'm not embarrassed that I guessed wrong because that answer is awesome. And being right is not the point. Making guesses is the point. The point about this is to think more deeply about the things that you see. All right, the last step is to wonder. So you will write down, I wonder. And this is where you get to ask questions. The hard part about this step is that you may not get an answer, and there may not actually be an answer to any of your questions. But you have to ask the questions anyway. You basically get to wonder why the artist did what he did. So why did he use those colors that I think are so lame? Or what is happening over in the corner? Um, where, do the, where does the door in the back of the painting lead to? What is that landscape back there? When was this painting? Or when was this painted? Why was this painted? And no question is off limits. So write down whatever questions you have. There are no rules. Why are they wearing flip-flops? <laughs> Why are they wearing flip-flops? Bothers me. <laughs> Um, all right, I'm not going to have you guys share any of your answers um, right now, but hold on to these papers because Michael is going to tell you more about the painting, so you might get some of your questions answered. Um, and in my classroom, this is where I might encourage my students to go do some research on their own so that they can answer their own questions, so you can do that too. Um, and those of you who were dying to share and I didn't let you can discuss it over lunch, um, or you can come find me in the lobby later and tell me all of your answers. I would love to hear them because I am a teacher, so I do like hearing your answers. I don't want to hear your answers, by the way. <laughs> talk to her. Don't talk to me. Leave me alone. <laughs> all right. So the whole point of See, Think, Wonder is to move us beyond just looking at art. It's to get to the wonder. It's to start asking why. Something that I hear all the time, especially when looking at abstract art, is I could do that. I could do that. And I always say, you're probably right. You probably could do that. But did you? 
and would you? Because it's not about ability. There's a lot of art that I, as an artist, could make. I am capable of it. I could exactly copy this painting behind me. I could. Um, but that's cool, and it's something that I learned to do when I was first learning about art. It helped me grow as an artist. It helped me learn new techniques and become better, but it's not the point of making art. The question I have to ask isn't, could I do that when I'm viewing art? It's, why did they do that? Because the why is what drives an artist. Why do they paint what they paint, and why do they paint it how they paint it? What was inside of them that made, they, made them paint this exactly the way they did? And this is where really good art comes from. It's born from the drive inside of an artist that makes them create, because every painting tells a story. And this could be a personal story about the artist and what they were feeling when they created it, but it could also be a bigger story outside of themselves. It could be a story of the subject matter of the painting, like the one that is behind me. But the thing we have to realize is that every artistic choice that an artist makes tells that story from their perspective. And this is different than the way another artist might do it. So the colors and how they interact with each other is a choice that the artist made, and it changes the story. And the lines and the shapes that an artist makes, the movement that that creates changes the story. So when we're able to look at art and move beyond simply what we see, and beyond even what we think is going on, and get to that wonder, we can stop looking at it and we can start responding to it. Because the cool thing is that our response is unique to us. And it's often outside of what the artist even intended. And this is okay, it's good. As an artist, I view paintings differently than someone who has no background in art. That makes sense. If I'm a follower of Jesus and I know a little bit about art history, I might look at this painting behind me differently. As a mom, I see the world differently, and that's going to change how I respond to art. It changes how I respond to everything. Everything that we experience changes how we view the world around us. My students, for example, respond to art way differently than I do, and they should because their world is way different than my world, and that's cool. It doesn't mean that I dismiss their response because it is different than mine. Because art is made to be looked at and not hidden, it is also made to be responded to. So a painting is never just one single painting. If a thousand people view a painting, it becomes a thousand different paintings because every response tells a new story. It's a story through the eyes of the person viewing it and responding to it. The knowledge and life and story of that person blends together with the knowledge and life and story of the artist. Because no matter what they're making, an artist puts part of themselves into it. It's unavoidable. It's why my daughter gets so angry when the cat she's trying to draw doesn't look the way she wants it to look. Um, art is personal, it's emotional, it's risky, and it's vulnerable. And that vulnerable part of the artist that they have put into their art lives on through every single person who sees it and responds to it. And I think that is really cool. So as we go through this series and we look at all these different artworks, I want you to remember to wonder. Don't just look at paintings, wonder about them. Make guesses, ask why, respond to the art because your response matters. Thank you. Aren't you glad I didn't do that? <laughs> it would not have been as good. So, so let's talk uh, about this painting. Let's talk about The Last Supper. Um, this is easily one of the most famous pieces of art in the world. 
It was painted by Leonardo da Vinci between the years 1495 and 1498 in the height of this artistic movement known as the Renaissance. And it took da Vinci three years to finish this painting, partly because of his hyper attention to detail that many people actually believe was the result of severe ADHD, um, but it's also because he used a medium uh, that kind of used oil paints. And oil takes a long time to dry, and so it was very methodical as he went through it. But also because this painting is actually 15 feet tall by 29 feet wide. And so for context, if you look at that pillar in the middle of the room and followed the wall back this way or this way, that's the size of the painting. It is that big, so it took him three years the painting was commissioned by the Duke of Milan for the Dominican Monastery in Italy, and that's where it still is today. There are copies of it. In fact, he had assistants that painted versions of The Last Supper. So if you go to different museums in Europe, you might have seen a copy of it, but it's not the original because that is still on the same wall in Milan. Today, uh, on average, over 500,000 people visit this painting every single year. Uh, but what makes it even more incredible is you can only go in 25 people at a time. In order to preserve the history of this art, uh, they just take in small groups. And it still ends up being the fifth most viewed painting in the world every single year. One of the most famous artistic elements of this painting is how da Vinci used linear perspective. This is a technique that uses parallel lines that converge at a single vanishing point to create this illusion of depth on a flat surface. He placed the vanishing point at Jesus' right temple, drawing the viewer's attention toward the main subject, no matter where they are standing in the room looking at this painting. So it doesn't matter where you are sitting today. It doesn't matter if you go to the monastery and look. If you look at this painting, all the lines will bring your eyes right to Jesus. And this is a nod to him being the most important figure in this story, the center of their lives and the center of their faith. Now I'm going to read the story that inspired this painting. Just for context for what we're about to read, for the past three years, Jesus has been preaching, teaching, and performing miracles to prove that he is actually the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, the one that was sent to rescue God's people from their sin. And his time on earth is coming to an end, and the culmination of his life on earth is that he has to be crucified. He has to be put up on a cross in order to take on the sin of the world and then resurrect from the dead to prove that everything he said and everything he promised was true. And so in this story, the time of his arrest and crucifixion are imminent, and Jesus knows this. This isn't a surprise to him. And so on the last night, he's with his disciples. He leads them to a place where they can sit and have a meal together to celebrate something called Passover. Passover celebrates when the Israelites escaped slavery in Egypt. And this story of the Last Supper is actually found in all four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of the few stories that we get in all four of them. And for today, we're going to read the version of the story that's found in the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew, who was there, right? Matthew, who was sitting at the table with Jesus, wrote this about this moment. Matthew 26, starting in verse 20. He wrote, when it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve, right? That's what we just saw in this painting. Now, during Passover, it was typical for families to celebrate together. And what they would do is they would gather at these large tables that were actually just a few inches 
off of the ground. Now, this is where Da Vinci takes a little bit of artistic liberty, right? It's a skinny table that's really long, but more likely it would have been a few inches off the ground. It would have been a little bit wider. Um, it would have been shaped in a U sometimes. It would not have been a farm table that Joanna Gaines went and found at a flea market somewhere. But the point is they would kind of sit in this community style. Um, really, they would recline. Typically, kind of they would lay down and have these meals together. The best example I can give of what this meal would be like would kind of be Thanksgiving, where you sit for a while, right? You talk for a while. You spend time together for a while. It's not like a dine and dash type of scenario. And so in this last night, before Jesus gets arrested, he brings them together to celebrate. And he's spending their time with them because that is his family, right? And typically over Passover, the head of the table would have been a father or a grandfather, but Jesus sits in that place. And maybe it's because he's Jesus, maybe it's because he's the son of God, but more than likely it's because he's their leader, right? He's the one caring for these people. What's really cool about this story and this painting is that it shows us this family that Jesus had. Really, it's the family that he chose, right? These were the people he wanted to be at his table as he approached death. Now, we know that Jesus had half-siblings. We know that he had a mother, Right? We believe that at this point, Joseph had died, and so, but we know that he had blood relatives. But we also know that Jesus famously once said when talking about that family, he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he pointed at his disciples, he pointed at those men and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Right? And so these guys are his family. This makes sense because they've been through so much together. They had seen Jesus do miraculous things like walking on water, raising people from the dead, multiplying bread and fish to feed tens of thousands of people. But they had also experienced rejection together. They had been persecuted together. They had mourned loss together. You know, those 12 guys had dropped everything. They had left their families to follow Jesus. And so these guys were close, right? This is a family moment. The story continues in verse 21. While they were eating... Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Have you ever been a part of a meal when someone interrupted it and just completely killed the vibe? The first time I ever met Ray's family, we were freshmen in college, and we weren't dating because we were just friends, aka she friend-zoned me really hard, uh, so hard that we walked into her parents' house, and she was like, this is my friend, Michael, and it was like, very clear, joke's on her, we're married now, so... <laughs> So that night, I'm with her family as a friend, and we're all eating dinner together, but it was everybody. Uh, it was her parents, it was her cousins, her aunts, uh, her grandma. Everyone was in town to celebrate. And they were sharing stories. They hadn't seen each other in a while. They were laughing and reminiscing. It was a ton of fun. But in the middle of the conversation, Ray's grandma looked at her cousin's newborn baby and out of nowhere said, you look just like great-grandma, and grandma had a stroke when she was 30. And it killed the vibe. There was no recovery from that. Like, what are you saying about this baby in this moment? Right, and I feel like that's kind of what Jesus just did. They're all sitting down, they're eating a meal. Remember, it's a celebration. And then Jesus interrupts. Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying dinner. Second course is coming soon. By the way, one of you is going to betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? And I actually love this part of the story when each one of them says that. Am I the one? I think this speaks to the insecurity of these men. Right? Just because they've been in the presence of Jesus for three years, they've seen him do amazing 
things, that didn't mean they didn't struggle with self-doubt. Right? It didn't mean because they walked with Jesus, they didn't struggle with imposter syndrome when it came to their belief and their faith. Not one of them are sitting at that table thinking confidently that they're not the one that's going to screw this up. Right? They have those doubts, they have those fears, they have those insecurities, even while they walked with Jesus. And Jesus replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me, for the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. If you're reading uh, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus says, as the scriptures declared long ago, he's referencing the prophecies that are found in the Old Testament of the Bible that foreshadowed the coming Messiah. And in this moment, Jesus is actually referencing multiple of them. Uh, Zechariah 11 says that the Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 13 says that he would eventually be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 22 says that he would die by crucifixion. And so Jesus is telling them, ultimately, this has to happen. Right? This is part of my life. This is part of my story. I need to fulfill these prophecies to prove that I am the one. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And then Jesus turns his attention to Judas, who's the one who betrays him. And he says, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. And Jesus calls him out in front of everybody. But what the disciples don't really know and what they don't really uh, figure out until later is right before they sat down for dinner, Jesus had made an agreement to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Right? And so he asks, am I the one? But he's holding the money. He knows. While this seems like a tense moment, which it probably was for everyone else there, Jesus understands that it has to happen this way. Right? This is part of the story. And so he just continues in the meal. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And this is the moment where we get communion from. Right, this sacrament, this thing that we participate in, and similarly to these guys. Right? And this is what makes this moment important. Right? It has nothing to do with the bread and the juice. Okay? That, those aren't special. The things that you guys take on Sunday during communion, we know they taste gross. Because it's, it's not about the bread. Right? It's styrofoam, probably. We're not really sure. <laughs> the thing is, it's just bread and juice. It's a symbol. Right? I don't bless it. I have no special powers to like, wave my hand over it. It comes from a company in a box. But what it represents is what matters. Right? It represents this moment. It represents what Jesus is about to do. They don't know it yet. We do because we have scripture. Right? It's the reminder of grace. That's what communion is. It's a reminder of forgiveness, of his blood poured out for us. It's a reminder that Jesus has to give up his life so that we can have one. And this is why at Collective we take communion every week. It's because of this moment. In fact, a little church history for you. Uh, communion was the center of all church and worship services for hundreds of years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Yeah, honestly, it was a part of everything that they did, whether it was a worship service on Sunday or whether they got together during the week. It wasn't music. Right? It wasn't preaching. I don't know when this became important. It's probably because of narcissism. I don't know. It was communion. Communion was the most important part of worship services, and that's how important it is to our faith. And that 
is what's happening in this story. But let's get back to the painting. The scene in the painting is not a frozen moment from the story, rather a representative of successive moments. Essentially, this is the entire story we just read in one painting. According to Leonardo's belief that posture, gesture, and expression should manifest notions of the mind, wonder, each of the 12 disciples react to what's going on in this story in a manner in which da Vinci considered fit for their character. Right? He'd read the stories in the gospel, he'd read about their personalities, read about their character, and he painted that into this story. And so while the 12 disciples frantically react to what Jesus has said and done, Jesus sits calmly at the center. Another amazing thing is that da Vinci draws his body, if you notice, in an equilateral triangle. This is a harmonious shape that alludes to the Trinity, right? the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus' serene composure with his head and eyes lowered contrasts the agitation and confusion of the apostles. Right? Their varying postures, if you look, rise and fall. They intertwine while being organized in groups of three. Again, another nod to the Trinity. And the first grouping, if you're looking at it to the left, to Jesus' right, are Peter, John, and Judas. No, that is not a woman. Uh, that's John. That's just how he was painted. But one of the most important people in this story is Judas, and he's in the blue. If you look closely down at his arms, you'll notice that there's an overturned container of salt next to his right arm. During the time that da Vinci painted this, spilling salt was known as a bad omen. If you look at his other hand, you'll notice that Judas is gripping the purse that contains his reward for identifying Jesus. At the same time, Jesus and Judas are also reaching toward the same dish on the table, um, an act marking Judas as the betrayer. Philip, who stands in the group to Jesus' left, gestures towards himself, seemingly to ask the question, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? Jesus also gestures toward a glass of wine and a piece of bread, suggesting and alluding to the establishment of communion. James, to Christ's left, throws his arms out angrily. The disbelieving Thomas, crouched behind James, points upward, right, seemingly to ask, is this what God wants? Is this part of God's plan? alluding to something that happens later in the story of Jesus with Thomas. Uh, his gesture essentially anticipates this reunion that they'll have where he still has those doubts. Peter, who's identified in this painting by the knife in his hand, again, is alluding to something that will happen later when he cuts the ear off one of the people trying to arrest Jesus. And while he does that, he kind of leans toward the mild-tempered, the soft, sorrowful John who sits at Jesus' right and appears to be swooning. The rest of the apostles appear to whisper and grieve and debate among themselves. And there are a lot of amazing things going on in this story. There are a lot of things that we could learn from Matthew 26. There are a lot of things that we could focus on today. We could focus on the prophecies. Right? We can talk about what Jesus alluded to and how he fulfilled them. We could focus on what happens after this moment with Judas. We could focus more on the topic of communion but here's what I, what I want to focus on today in this story that I think this painting helps us see a little bit better. You think about who is sitting at the table with Jesus. These guys aren't the who's who of Israel. Right? If Jesus is drafting a fantasy team of Christian people, most of these guys are not late round picks. They're not even considered. Right? We know that Peter was slow to listen and quick to speak that he had anger issues, and moments right after this meal, he denies even knowing Jesus three times, and Jesus knew he would do it. Jesus actually says to him, you're going to do this thing, and Peter denies that he will, and then denies Jesus three times. 
Thomas struggled with doubt. Right? Even beyond this moment, he struggles with doubt. We'll talk about that more in a few weeks. James and John were self-centered. They cared more about their place at that table, which is why they're on the opposite sides of Jesus. Right? They wanted to be the head of this movement, but they didn't really care about what Jesus was teaching about people. Judas betrayed Jesus for what ended up being about $100. Matthew was a tax collector, and tax collectors during that time were notorious for cheating people out of money. Simon, who's sitting at the table, was a zealot. A zealot was essentially a Jewish terrorist. They were people who opposed Rome and would murder people who got in the way of trying to stop them from tearing down Rome. And every single one of these guys, the moment Jesus is arrested, they bail. Three years of seeing what Jesus has done, three years of their life being impacted, three years of their lives changing, of seeing miracles. And the moment something goes down, they're out. They bail. Most of them don't even experience the crucifixion. They're so far away. In other words, these are ordinary people. These are just people. They are broken and they are messed up and they are sinful people. They're just like us. Right? There really isn't anything special about them. Nothing. Right? They screw up, they fall short, they fail, and yet Jesus chooses to bring them to his table. And so write this down. Here, here's the main takeaway for today. You are not too broken for Jesus. It really is that simple. You are not too broken for Jesus. Jesus didn't come to earth so that only perfect people could have a relationship with him. He came for lost and broken people like us. I know some of you struggle to believe this is true because of what you've done and the life you've lived. And oftentimes, if you've read this story before, you think, I'm not sitting at that table. Right? You don't even think you're looking in the window in the back because Jesus wouldn't let you be there. Right? And you think, that, that would never be me. Jesus would never let me sit there. Jesus wouldn't want me following him. Jesus wouldn't have died for my sins if he knew what I'm doing. And the thing is, I know some of your stories. I know what you've shared with me. I know about the alcohol and drug addictions. I know about the anger issues. I know about the lack of sexual boundaries. I know the way that you've hurt other people. I know about the use of you choosing your own way over God's. But I also know that part of the reason you struggle with this isn't because of Jesus. Right? It's not because of Jesus, because when you read this story, you realize those guys are just like us. But the reason you struggle with this is because of other Christians because there's been times when you've walked into church on a Sunday morning hanging on by a thread, when you were beat down, broken, lost, confused, and desperate, and someone told you it was too late, right? that you didn't belong, that you couldn't take a seat, that you were too broken, too lost, too far from God to have a seat at his table. Ultimately, that you had to clean yourself up first before taking a seat, and it's just not true. Jesus didn't ask that of any of them before they sat with him. Moments before his death, he is not asking them, how strong is your faith right now? He's saying, hey, will you take this seat with me? Now, I don't know uh, a ton about social media and TikTok and how it works, but apparently one of the things that people do is they take videos that people have posted and they record themselves commenting and reacting to these videos. I think they're called duets. I'm not 100%. Don't nod because I'm going to judge you hard if you're on TikTok. Um, I think this is the dumbest thing on social media right now, right? You are a stranger commenting on a stranger's comment, hoping that strangers like what you are posting. I, I just don't get it. But a few weeks ago, someone had shared a duet on Instagram, 
because I'm old, and that's how I see things that may or may not be on TikTok. And I came across this duet, and one of the clips was a pastor named Jim Bergen from Flatirons Church in Colorado. And I personally love Jim Bergen. I love his books. I love his sermons. Um, I've learned a lot from him as a pastor. He mentors my mentor. Um, In this video, Bergen was talking about this idea of being too broken for Jesus. He said this, He said, do you have to get cleaned up before you get in the shower? No. You get in the shower and it cleans you up. And the same is true with Jesus. You don't try to clean up your life and be a better person in order to be with Jesus. You just be with Jesus. You follow Jesus. And how about this? If anything needs to get cleaned up in your life, the two of you will work that out and he'll point that out to you and you'll actually agree with him and then you will clean it up together. How about that? And the duet was a Christian person commenting that Bergen was watering down the gospel and misunderstanding Jesus. And I saw this and thought, this is why people don't follow him. Because right? we're watching duets commenting on preachers instead of going to scripture and seeing who are the people that sat at his table? Who are the people that he called friends? Who are the people that he called family? Who were the people that he walked with? Right? It's not because of Jesus, it's because of Christians. And so please hear me as I say this. You don't need to change before you put your faith in Jesus. You just don't. You don't need to be perfect to sit at his table, to have a relationship with him, to have faith. And I don't know where this came from, but I'm assuming it came from Christians who have decided that there's this level of brokenness that they are comfortable with, that there's this level of lostness that they can manage and cope with, that there's a style of sin that's redeemable and a style of sin that isn't. And they put these parameters around what you need to do in order to follow Jesus. But Jesus doesn't do that. He just doesn't. And so listen, I know some of you are in that place where you feel unforgivable. You feel too sinful, too broken, too bad to be loved by Jesus. Lean in for a second. Let me have a conversation with you. You are wrong. You are wrong. You are not too addicted, too angry, too doubtful, too anything to be loved by him. Too messed up to have a seat at his table. Look at those guys. Look at who they are. Look at what they're struggling with. Look at what they continued to do beyond this moment. You can never be too broken to be loved by him. Hebrews 9, 28 says, So also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. Romans 5.8 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While. Right? There, there was no stipulation on clean yourself up first. Right? He didn't sit at the table and say, figure this out, figure this out, figure this out, figure this out, and then I'm going to die for you. He said, you all are really screwed up. And so here's the plan. John 15.13 says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so it's like this. Jesus has this table, and there are seats at it, and he invites people to sit at it that are just like us. He doesn't say that we have to clean ourselves up before we grab a seat. He doesn't say that we have to make a promise to do everything perfect once we take a place at the table. What he says is, come sit with me, and now I'm going to die for you. I'm going to give up my life for you. I'm going to shed my blood for you because I love you. And this is for anybody who wants to grab a seat. And that's what this story is about. Really, it's about grace. It's about the fact that there are endless second chances, that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. And that for reasons that don't make sense to us, Jesus wants to be in our lives. 
And the thing is, some of you have never stepped into that faith in Jesus because of other Christians, because how the church has made you feel. Some of you have never been baptized because of thoughts of people who follow Jesus. What you're doing is you're allowing them to duet your life and share their thoughts and opinions on the way you're living when the only thoughts and opinions that matter are God's. And because of other voices, because of other things, you feel too whatever to be loved by God. But this story shows us that it's just not true. And so if you are not a follower of Jesus, here's my challenge for you. It's to lean in and take a seat at his table. It's to put your faith in Jesus. It's to get baptized. Baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection in our own lives. There's not a better Sunday to celebrate that than Easter. But the thing is, you don't have to be perfect to do it. You don't have to have your life together. You just need to realize that you need grace And Jesus is where you get it. There's one more thing about this story I want to point out. Let's read verse 28 again. It says, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. In this moment, while they're sitting at this table, Jesus says that this is a covenant. What he's saying is that this is a promise. The best example of a covenant we have in today's culture would be marriage. But in the Bible, there was an old covenant and a new covenant. The old covenant was a promise that God made to the Israelites. He gave them something called the law and said, you need to follow this. But part of the old covenant was God knew that they would fall short, so he created this sacrificial system where they would sacrifice animals for, to be cleansed of their sins. The problem was they had to do this all the time. In fact, they had to do it once a year, and, and even more so than that, only priests could do it, because only priests could be in the presence of God. But when Jesus is sitting here, he's alluding to something that we call the new covenant, and what it comes from is the fact that Jesus sacrificed his life to pay our sins once and for all, right? We don't have to go back every single year, but more importantly than that, a high priest doesn't have to do it for us, right? We get to have that relationship with Jesus, right? And so in this moment, he's promising us forgiveness. He's promising us grace. He's promising us new life. And as we head into the weeks leading up to Easter, as we continue in this story, as we continue looking at art that depicts it, we're gonna see everything that Jesus did to hold true to that promise that we could be made new, that we could experience grace, that we could have hope, that we could have a seat at his table. Let's pray. God, there are times when, God, when we're at church, when we're reading the Bible, when we read these stories and we really wrestle with where do we fit. God, oftentimes we put these disciples up on a pedestal and say, they're not like me. Like, good for them, proud of them, but that's, that's not who I am. But God, as we dig deeper into the story, as we read more in the Bible, we realize that they are just lost and broken people like us. They're just lucky enough to experience Jesus. So God, I just pray as we wrestle with this, God, as we wrestle with our faith, as we wrestle with, um, God, our sin and our our brokenness, um, God, with our lostness, God, I I pray that we realize um, we are never too anything to be loved by you. God, we are never too jacked up to be asked to have a seat at your table. God, you offered that seat to us And then you gave up your life so that we could experience it fully. That's a promise that you made. 
So God, we're so thankful for that promise. God, we're so thankful that you backed it up um, by giving up your own life. God, we don't understand it. We recognize we don't deserve it. But God, we're thankful for grace and for hope and for life and all the goodness that you offer. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.